Thanks for coming, man. I'm so excited to have you. So good to be with you, man. Yeah, I love bumping into you in the in the restaurant the other night before yeah. uh, holidays, and um, seeing you with uh, your wife. I think was there. I didn't say yeah. hello, but yeah. uh, and some... I dragged her into a business dinner. Yeah, you that's what it looked like. She was thrilled <laughs> to be there. <laughs> and you said you were uh, taking your son away for holidays for his birthday. Yes, we just came back. Nice. Um, he just turned 18, and uh, he. He finished, uh, well, almost finished high school, got accepted in the business school, BCIT, which I have a, a soft spot for. Yeah. And uh, we're total soccer geeks, as you would remember. Yeah. And uh, we were like, well, what do you want to do for your 18th birthday? Obviously, like everyone else, we haven't gone anywhere for a couple of years. So he's like, hey, like, can we go watch some soccer in England? And we're Manchester United fans. So we went down and watched a terrible second leg of the Champions League. Uh, no. They didn't they didn't show up that game, but we went on uh, to London. Uh, we spent, we watched another four games in five days, which was incredible. Nice. So, you know, I know I'm a little bit further ahead of you in timing with the kids, but it's a must do. Uh, just an amazing experience, just the yeah. two of us. And that uh, was my way of also teaching him how to travel economically because this is, you know, 18, 19, probably going to go on a trip with, yeah. on his own with his friends. It's kind of a cool way to uh, show him uh, another way of traveling. How do you, you know, book frugally and all yeah. that good stuff. So he it was kind that. of fun. Yeah, Back, we did back in the hostels? No, or? no, no, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, they were, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> but even the tickets, believe me when I tell you that. But yeah. uh, no, just a way for him to kind of know how to find his surroundings and yeah. find a good way to, to uh, travel. So not the traditional family um vacation where maybe he gets a little bit more indulgence yeah so he loved yeah. it no doubt absolutely loved it and i uh, came back and he's still on a high awesome so cool i'm sure like uh, i'm sure he's he le- had this the most amazing memories with you that he'll have for a whole lifetime yeah that's yeah. what everyone kept saying it's like wow this memory and then I, it's shocking because i you know tell a few friends whatever oh you know we saw something on instagram from Jaden and and uh, what you know did you know that i did that with my dad i actually he took me one time to italy watch a soccer game or somebody went to france watch a soccer game and i was like actually i didn't but that's yeah. awesome and these are all like 50 year old men that have those memories like yeah. tattooed in their head so it was kind of cool cool so good to hear i, I want to hear more about your story and so so do other people so let's go very much back to the beginning of Joseph Nakla. <laughs> in uh, you grew up in Egypt, yes, right. Uh, what was that like? Uh, very different to growing up here. Um, How old were you when when you left? Uh, Sixteen. So I, you had quite a quite a youth there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, very memorable youth. Um, I don't. It's not one of those where you know you grow up in a place for three, four years and you don't have much memory of it. Um, I loved growing up in Egypt. Um, so we're, we're uh, by way of kind of orientation here, uh, we're, uh, my family is what's called the uh, Coptic uh, faith, which is, which is an old school, uh, ultra-Orthodox Christianity, right? And it's, um, you know, Greek Orthodox would be a very f- uh, familiar kind of uh, a faith that, so the Coptic Orthodox is kind of Alexandria base, which is the city I grew up in. We have our own Pope, which is hard to believe, but there's yeah. a Pope in uh, lives in Alexandria, who is the Pope of the uh, of the Coptic Church, and it's uh, uses a, a very similar language to Latin, uh, the Copt language. Uh, it's no longer used anywhere else globally, um, and it only gets used in Sunday churches in these in these you know Coptic 
uh, uh, within the Coptic churches. And uh, so we grew up Copts. And the reason that's of relevance is simply because obviously that's a, a minority uh, in Egypt. So with a name like Joseph, it's obviously a very Christian name. And, you know, you look at my whole full name. So growing up in a, in a, in a country that was, um, you know, majority Muslim, and um, that was an interesting uh, place to grow up simply not because of, you know, obviously diversity exists everywhere in the world, but in, in Egypt, culturally, the Arabic culture, um, religion plays a major role, actually, even the way we speak the language. Um, so, so it's kind of evident and, and there, you know, what you do on, on, on Sunday, in the case, if you're a Muslim, what you do on Friday. So there's kind of an element of, of beautiful kind of mosaic that occurs with these religious religions coming together, especially in a city like Alexandria over the years. And I, I loved that aspect of it. It was my way of, you know, it's kind of I always joke when I say I've always been a minority. I've never lived in a place where I wasn't a minority, which is kind of cool um, because it kind of allowed me to grow up and a appreciate uh, tolerance between people, which I think is really, really important and, and appreciate also learning about each other's backgrounds uh, because you had to. It's not like you grew up in a place where everybody was identical. Yeah. Um, mom and dad were uh, very much uh, kind of a middle class, maybe arguably lower middle class uh, family, uh, grew up, um, you know, fell in love when they were really young and, and uh, came from a place and it's called Upper Egypt, even though it's in the south of Egypt. And uh, there they uh, fell in love. They moved to the city. So Alexandria is the second largest city in in um, in Egypt. And uh, kind of to pursue their their careers. My dad was an accountant. My mother was uh, a seamstress. Um, she actually was an accountant as well. But she was so good at amazing vision for for uh, creating beautiful dresses. And um, so that she actually pursued that as a as a career. Just kind of bought the machinery at home, and that's what she did to be close to kids in my case my baby sister is 13 years younger than me so it's a big difference age difference and my father was a very straight very very hard-working man who um uh, had the type of jobs which is kind of a funny story but the kind of jobs that uh, uh, a lot of coptic christians end up getting which is usually treasurers uh just due to the fact that they're very straight and they're very honest and uh so he was always a treasurer every time i've always yeah. known my father as a treasurer and then they put him um in this very uh, uh interesting job where where he was kind of the purchaser so not only the treasurer but he actually was responsible to uh, you know identify the the suppliers and what kind of company it was a uh, it was a a rice company it actually was the largest rice uh, producer in egypt and then it kind of produced um, other products uh, like uh, uh, pasta and other types of products. So he kind of, his job grew and they put him into this role simply because they knew he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna be on the take, yeah. right? And uh, and because it doesn't pay very well to be in those roles, because these are, these are crown corporations, these are companies that are owned by the government. So um, they're nationalized. So there's really no salary, you know, massive salaries in these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, he also had other inside things that he would do and um, one of my favorite things that he did and uh, he passed away a couple of years ago so i actually told that story uh, or just spoke about that um, uh, at his funeral but um he actually converted his actual car a fiat 124 so 1972 fiat 124 google it. it's a really cool looking car you'll know the 
the look of the car. I converted that into a taxi and he actually no drove that around. So this guy was vice president and treasurer of this big company would show up in a taxi, but it's, he's the driver of the taxi. And uh, it's a great story, just uh, a true story. And, and it reminds me a lot of uh, just humility of, of, you know, how a man like that can, can have that level of humility. So I absolutely love that about it. And uh, so the- Fiat 124 Spider. No, Fiat 124, 1972. Okay. You'll have seen it in every single old uh, European Italian movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see it. You see that? That's cool. And now, now so you want to just close the loop on the joke now. So now Google um, taxi, uh, Alexandria taxi. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, you'll, you'll see why it's really funny. Oh, that's and it looks like a clown car. Can you see that? It's yeah. orange yeah. and black. That's what you convert your car into. So try be a, being a child and growing up, being dropped off yeah. everywhere in that car to school and everything else, right? Humbling. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you take your cues from your parents often, right? And uh, I did certainly. And uh, you take your what cues? Your cues yeah. in life and how you behave as you grow up. Um, and I noticed. Um, you know, it's really interesting for me because I, I noticed this proud man waking up every morning, putting on, you know, a suit and and getting in this taxi clown car. Let's face it, it looks funny, right? It's black, yeah. it's black and orange and driving there. And he's serious about his work and he takes his work seriously and, and, and he's an accomplished and um, he works incredibly hard. And, uh, you know, you watch that and you, all of a sudden you got to, you know, why would I be ashamed of that, right? Mm -hmm. if, if my father does that, then it's the right thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny because since then I've never really ever, it's weird, I've never really felt that level of ashamed, certainly not from uh, any material things. You know, I kind of always, I, I call it being comfortable in your own skin, right? And I, I literally, that's all I wish for anybody, including my own kids. Um, I think the happiest people are the people that are generally are comfortable in their own skin you know it doesn't matter you some people have some people don't uh some people have with an abundance some people don't it doesn't matter you just gotta be you know happy there so so um growing up there that was that was really cool um uh we lived in a really basic concrete apartment uh five homes in the building and we uh were i'd say maybe four minute walk from the beach um which is amazing um so the water, like the, the, in this case, it's, it's not an ocean. It's a, it's the Mediterranean sea, um, is something that I grew up with. I've been incredibly fortunate to obviously, you know, immigrate from, from Alexandria to Vancouver. So I didn't go very far from the water. Um, and I, I just don't know if I could ever live in a place that didn't have the water so close to it. But, um, uh, Egypt was, was just incredible that way. Played lots of soccer on the sand, no shoes. And then I was, I guess, a, a pretty good little soccer player. So I, I got some good opportunities to play at, at different clubs in, in Egypt and um, didn't pursue it professionally, but certainly um, it's been a part of my life since. And I still coach and play and nice. kids coach or my own kids play and I coach them. And so it's it's a big part of my life. So it's a, it was a, an amazing place to grow up. Um, it's It was hot, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, it was... Um, it was a, a an interesting view into uh, you know a place like the Middle East, right? And because uh, you know you know grew up uh, in in what my memory serves me in the eighties. I don't really have a ton of memories in the you know in the seventies. I was very very young, but uh, in the eighties um, it was an interesting time around the, the the Middle East and watching you know Egypt 
trying to uh, bring some peace with Israel and watching other Arab countries kind of boycott Egypt and and just watching the whole dynamic there. There was obviously the Iran Iraq mm-hmm. war, which was was really interesting and and uh, watching the you know just watching all these things occur from the lens of living in Egypt was really interesting. And now you come you know, live in Canada and you have your other perspective now, how how these things came about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is kind of a a blend of all the memories I have of of that beautiful country. And you felt like a religious minority, soccer on the beach and, and politically there was, uh, there was all the stuff you just mentioned, Iran and Iraq thing was going on. And, and is that why your family decided to come here? Was that in the late eighties or when did that happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think it would be, it has to be said that my parents had the foresight to recognize some of the turbulence under the surface, uh, political turbulence that could affect a minority like us. Yeah. And um, I, certainly my parents weren't the only ones probably thinking that way. There's probably a, a good uh, a list of, a long list of, of people that were thinking that way. And, um, Canada, I remember growing up, like it's Canada, Australia, and, and the US. These were the places that generally would have their doors open for for uh, immigrant immigration. Although in Egypt, it's a lot of people that go to Italy and Greece and, you know, just across the Mediterranean, essentially. Um, but, but yeah, and then, and then uh, two years before we immigrated, my, uh, my aunt, who's my mom's sister and her family came to Canada. And um, a lot of people don't know this, but because Egypt, is not a commonwealth country. An overwhelming majority of people that immigrate to, to Canada are commonwealth. So it's actually a much easier path in the case of, of people that come from a place like Egypt and other places as well that are not commonwealth. You, there's actually a lot less long, a lot less, uh, a lot longer wait and a lot less options. And uh, one of the options that was available for us is this concept of coming into Canada and establishing Did you say a it's business. harder to get into Canada from Egypt? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Commonwealth countries, um, way easier, way easier, um, more defined path and, and, and non-commonwealth countries like Egypt, um, there's limited <clears throat> options. And, and, and at the time I, I'm not as familiar now with immigration laws, but at the time it was, it was more, uh, I remember clearly was, it was, you had to come here, you had to bring a specific amount of capital here. You had to establish a Canadian business and hire a number of Canadian employees for a specific period of time before you can actually uh, receive your, I guess you receive your PR in, t- in due time. And then after that, you qualify for citizenship, which which we, we followed all the Were you excited about the idea when your parents first mentioned it? I guess you're a teenager and leaving your friends, but it sounded cool or no? Yes, I was. Um, I was, I was a, a socially active teenager. Um, so I had lots of friends and it was, it was involved with the, 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 it's called the Marine Scouts, which is basically the scouts. And, um, and, uh, it was kind of consuming a lot of my time between soccer and all this. So I, I did have quite a bit of social activities, um, there, but you know, there is something spectacular, spectacularly uh, exciting, uh, about, about coming to North America. Um, Canada was, was less known to me. I mean, I shouldn't say that I, it is known within the context of, I had my grandmother that lived in Canada and my uh, uncles that lived in Canada. I moved uh, to Canada early 80s, maybe even late 70s. Um, but we really didn't have any insight into that other than a few photos. And when I say photos, it's, it's like literally a couple of photos. It's yeah. not like phones with thousands of photos of, of different scenery. Postcard. 
Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, but I was, I was excited. Um, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. Um, I, cause I didn't speak uh, any English. Uh, so this was the curveball. That was the, the yeah. part that was, um, and you're ready into high school, I guess. Straight into high school. Actually, that also, maybe that served me well. I don't know. But um, I was actually, when I left Egypt, I was ready to go into university. I had already been accepted. So I was one year ahead, I guess, uh, from, a, from a timing point of view. So I just turned 16. I was going into, I was in Egypt education, uh, post-secondary education is a little bit different. I'm not, I don't think it's as, it operates the same way now, but everything is free all uh, post secondary is, is free so you really just go into university based on the marks that you have mm -hmm. and um because of that i i you know i was going into engineering uh, civil engineering and um when i left i came here and i i had to didn't have any of the grade 11 and grade 12 courses to graduate the traditional graduation here out of out of canadian school so, okay, so I, got, I had to jam as many of those as I could in a, about a span of about a year, maybe a year and a half, including a summer, and, but I didn't have the language. So that was, that was a curveball. So that kind of pushed me back. Well, it brought me back to where I belong, I guess, age-wise. Yeah. Um, and then I, then I went to BCIT for- so I can't imagine. I mean, school isn't easy for a lot of people and not understanding what they're saying at the front of the room, it's just bonkers. Yeah, yeah, it was it was hard. And yeah, you know, big shout out to Mrs. Alexander, who I have not seen for maybe 20 plus years. I have no idea where she is. Um, she, this woman, uh, so I, I came and we moved into um, my family moved into a basement suite at Newton, which is uh, in Surrey. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, for those that don't know, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting area to grow, to, 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 to move into as a, as a first spot. So we, we moved into this basement suite and just a one bedroom and, and, you know, sleeping on the couch. It's all good. Wasn't the postcard you got. It was not the postcard I got, but, you know, compared to Egypt, it was pretty cool. Like yeah. just coming out here, it's, uh, it, was, it was still pretty spectacular. But, um, so I joined the school and, you know, they're like, oh, you're going to do this ESL classes. And, and I, and I met this lady and she just was just, just, really just bigger than life person, right? Just, 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 you know, kind of louder and, and just so positive. And I can barely understand what she was saying, but my, my absolute luck was that she was doing a, um, she's getting, she's doing her thesis on a, on a methodology of, of teaching education that was different than the traditional ESL classes. And, um, and then it's, 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 it's a relevancy and it's, it's, uh, it's a way of, of not teaching us ABCs. It's actually sitting down. I remember very clearly the rods and the balls and it would be colored rods. And she would be like, you would not understand anything she's saying. She'd say, I will take the red rod. And then she'd just pick up a red rod. And you have no idea what she just said. Yeah. And then she'll repeat it again. She'll say, I'll take a blue rod. And then all I'm seeing is that she did something with a red item yeah. and a blue item. Then I would start connecting the dot. That's red word and it's blue. Yeah. Correct. And I would just, that's how I knew what red is, what blue is. Cool. And then she would say rod versus a ball. So all of a sudden you associate the, you know, items and, and it was, um, it was an incredible experience for me. It, I caught, I caught, I guess the wave and I, I picked up the language really quickly. Um, and thanks to just being socially active, playing soccer, um, you know, meeting yeah. people and that helps, right? You spoke soccer. I spoke soccer yeah, and everybody jumped right on the field. They're very popular. I'm sure. 
Well, when you're good at it yeah. in a country that wasn't as good at it, totally. now we're, we're a different country yeah. now. We're, we're a great soccer nation now. But yeah. um, so that, that helped a lot. And, um, and then from there, just got up and then, you know, did my post-secondary. Uh, at BCIT? BCIT. I, I, uh, back when they had soccer team, I was fortunate to get a full ride scholarship there. They don't have it anymore. My son just going to BCIT and they don't have soccer. He's a good soccer player. Mm-hmm. So they're, so they're lost. But, yeah. Um, but, um, I did that. And then, uh, from there, I, uh, even though I studied civil engineering, um, I, I uh, didn't really practice much. I, I came out and I probably in complete hindsight should not have gone into engineering. I, I still enjoyed every bit of it and it was, it was a great experience, but I probably should have gone into business from day one. And, uh, but it was, was, you know, it was in due time and left there and, and then got involved. Uh, I worked in the city of Surrey for a very short period of time with so many funny stories to tell. And uh, that didn't last very well, that very long, especially when I started to identify areas of, of uh, efficiencies that wasn't very popular with the union. So that needed to be, uh, I needed to move on to private practice and, and, Never looked back. I had the same experience at UVic. It was a co-op business program. And um, I did a semester or two at uh, for the provincial government at the superannuations commission, which was my job was to calculate the consequences of various potential policy changes to people's retirement programs in BC. Right. Right. Bunch of million different spreadsheets and uh, it didn't take me all day. Um, I did some long workouts, figured out I could do two, right. three hour workouts. wasn't going to be a problem. And, uh, I even took a few naps in the, in the medical room and I just I had to go in there <laughs> and, uh, I'd have the lights out and I'd be fully asleep, but I'd have programmed myself that if someone ever did come in, I'd say, Oh, I've got a migraine, turn the light back out. And they might not notice that I was actually sleeping. <laughs> oh, that was fun. And it, I think it was inspired by, um, the two girls who sat in the cubicles behind me. And uh, they were called special projects and they did absolutely nothing. There was no special projects. They just sat there day after day, talked about their weekends and, and they sort of loved their job. And I, and I learned that there was whole rooms full of computers um, that were bought and stored, you know, what computers depreciate at even in, in those days in the, right. in the later 90s. Um, Massive amounts, right? But the budgets had to be spent or they would be reduced and they, they had to spend it or they wouldn't get it next year. And all of these quite distasteful aspects of working for government right. um, steered me also in the direction of entrepreneurship. So where'd you go after uh, City of Surrey? What what did it push you to? I, uh, I uh, went out to um, uh, actually do sales of, uh, of a very, very cool technology and a new product that uh, didn't really, nobody knew anything about called GPS, <laughs> age of myself. <laughs> so, so in the, uh, in the mid nineties, um, a GPS receiver, um, that would actually be a lot less accurate than your current phone, uh, would, would, would sell for about half a million dollars. Wow. And it's, uh, it's, it's insane when you think about it, right? How far technology's come. So these receivers um, were basically big, you know, you, you, you will have seen people wearing those backpacks with a little receiver on top of them and they're holding something in their hand and, and they're walking around. It's, it's, it's great uh, mapping technology for what they call GIS or geographic information systems. And, and it's, it's a great way to map a, a, a neighborhood or a map a, a site, um, especially in forestry where the big trees are everywhere and you need, 
you can't see, you don't have line of sight. So you actually let your receiver essentially connect with the satellites to get it to its position. Again, I'm explaining to everybody what GPS is, but yeah. you know, we're, we're beyond that now. But um, so that was actually an amazingly great new piece of technology. So, so I got a call one day, I applied for this job and this guy called me and, and he goes, Joseph, is that you? I'm like, yeah, who's this? He's like, my name is Trevor Stickler. I said, hi, Trevor, how are you? What can I help you with? He's like, I uh, own a company called Butler Survey Equipment and I got this stupid thing called GPS that everybody keeps calling me about. And if somebody else calls me about it, I'm gonna kill somebody. I think it's a piece <laughs> of, you know what, technology. I don't think it's ever gonna work. It's so expensive. Is that his real name? Yeah, Trevor, Trevor Stickler. Stickler. Yeah, and he said, he says, um, yeah, I know, I know, no, it's true. And he said, uh, I need some, have you ever dealt with GPS before? And I go, I've never talked to this guy before ever, right? So I, I, I go, yeah, and in my head, I'm thinking, I think I had like six hours with the GPS in school, right? Like that was just so new and they kind of introduced us to us one day. I said, yeah, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at it. He's like, what, can you be an expert at it? I said, I'm sure I can be, yeah. So he's like, okay, well, come, he's Richmond, come on on um, Tuesday and I'm gonna show you what we've got. So I show up, I'm, meanwhile, again, this is before, you know, the internet was everywhere. So I, you know, kind of tough to get full education on GPS to show up. And I'm just trying to make it look like I know what I'm doing. He's like, okay, you look like you know what you're doing. You're too young, have you ever sold before? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, well, this is your desk you're selling GPS. And now any phone calls that comes and he's literally stood in the middle of the store. He goes, any phone calls that come up with GPS, go to him. He's just so annoyed with it. Just, didn't, he did not, well, it was so expensive. And and he wasn't wrong. It was way ahead of its time, right? So he he went out and, um, and uh, you know, gave me this, this essentially uh, uh, opportunity. And I was so thankful, I'm still thankful for that. And. I was like, oh, wow, okay, well, let's get these GPS receivers. And I'm sitting down and these things all look like those big black cases, the hard cases. Um, they look like you're, you know, like, look, actually looks like weapons are in there. Yeah. And yet you get educator on and all that good stuff. So, so I, I caught up to speed on it. And, and then I realized there's no chance these things will ever sell. Nobody, no Forrester is going to come out and buy a million dollars worth of receivers. Like, yeah. but the technology was cool. So I introduced this uh, leasing program. And I realized actually the value was in teaching people how to use it and have them take it for a day or two. So I, I got active with that and, you know, we, we did okay. And then coin dropped one day where I realized, you know what, this would be amazing is in places where they can't, they need to map things, but they don't have any relevant points. So islands would be amazing. And um, a place like Bahamas, a place like Turks and Caicos, these are places that I actually sold equipment into, um, you know, because of, of the massive hurricanes that they hit. They put all their power under the ground. So they put the power on the ground, but they don't map it. So they actually don't know where the power is. So, so you know, they're, you know, new hotels being built and they need to connect to the power line. They don't really know where it is. So they're accidentally digging and they make a mistake by a foot. And all of a sudden Club Med doesn't have power for a day or two. So it's a really big problem. So they need to map that. So when, when it all came together, I built this website, this again, really early. And that way was my way of getting the word out that there's this cool GPS thing from this little tiny company out of out of Richmond, yeah. uh, BC that can, this young guy will come in with his big cases, will fly in, will hang out with you for two weeks, teach you how to use it, show you how it works, charge you a thousand dollars a day. And it was actually a much more lucrative way for us to monetize these, these receivers than actually selling them. 
So I did that for a while. That was it was incredible. It was, it was very successful and um, kind of opened my eyes to the power of reach the web can could introduce. Cool. And did you say you end up leasing them instead of selling them? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I'm Just too expensive to, to sell. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I ever sold a system uh may have but but you know like i said i wasn't exaggerating when i said the first receivers i got introduced to were half a million dollars yeah. came down it came down to like fifty thousand and forty thousand so it became a bit more cost effective for some of the bigger construction mining and, and other groups and then uh, yeah but the leasing model was probably the, the best lucrative model because he kept the asset depreciated the asset but at the same time generated quite a bit of revenue recurring revenue from and then after that was teal correct and then uh um, you know, again, showing my age, the internet was becoming a lot more ubiquitous and more mainstream. And um, I met this young, handsome gentleman who was starting TO at the time. And uh, Hamid Rabazi was still a great friend and a very successful man. And his brother, Sam, I'll be having Middle Eastern food with this Saturday. I'm very excited about it. Nice. And, um, and uh, the, you know, starting this company. And, and the idea was to bring the internet to the masses again. People didn't have internet at home. People didn't have internet on their phone. So we we uh, created this software that sits on these PCs that sit inside of these kiosks, and people can actually interface with it, use credit card, coins, whatever the case may be, to be able to um, access their emails or or whatever useful information was needed. We started to pop these things in airports, uh, big cyber cafes, if you remember that. The big chapters and Indigo stores used to have those big cafes that that was all running our software. It was all our hardware that was in there. Um, we grew it. It was running in I want to say fifty countries, different places using the technology. And then um, as the internet became more and more ubiquitous, we kind of chose a lane and we chose the lane of payments. So we got deeper into how people pay their bills, and, and all of a sudden that brought in a whole new world of challenges. How do you let these you know, hardware pieces to interface with people to take payments. Again, it's pretty simple solutions now, but not at the time. Yeah. So we went out there and, and grew it. And obviously the company went public and the, the rest is history. Yeah. And uh, what was your role on that team? Um, so I first joined to oversee sales on marketing and then I became the COO of the company. Cool. Yeah. And it sold to PayPal? Sold to PayPal, yeah. First 20, 2017. 300 million? 305 million, but who's counting? Yeah. It's an amazing number. Yeah, it's a fantastic number, and 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 the team, uh, Hamid, and you know the 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 team deserve a tremendous amount of credit. It was it was a, it was a, like I said, it was it started as nothing. I remember it sale the first year, maybe two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand. We sold kiosks. Yeah, like actually, we sold cabinets. Like it looked like MDF cabinets. Totally. And uh, yeah, so to 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 grow the company to a point where it was doing hundred million dollars revenue a year. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. It must've been fun. How long was that? <laughs> overnight, 17 years. Yeah. yeah. That's how it goes, <laughs> right? Maybe more. Yeah. 17 year overnight yeah. success. Absolutely. Literally use that term a lot. I bet. What, uh, what's, is Hamed doing well? He's doing well health. Now. Well health. Yeah. yeah. He's the chairman and CEO there. And what are they doing? I mean, I hear about them. I know they're publicly traded. Um, they, as a good friend of yours, you must've got a lot of advice from him. Which, oh uh, yeah, I've, on your recent absolutely, sort of journey, absolutely, yeah. But what does Well do exactly? So Well, um, uh, again, I'm I'm not a spokesperson for Well, so yeah. I'm a happy shareholder. Yeah, but I will uh, say I think they're they're kind of digitizing the way clinics operate. I think they're specifically trying to. I think they they say that they're seeking a better outcome for the patients by way of introducing technology 
and 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 uh, digitization to the way traditional clinics uh, operate. So there's probably that includes, I'm sure, telehealth and yeah. accessibility of data and probably artificial intelligence that runs on there to kind of identify and make life easier for mm -hmm. for the uh, um, doctors. Um, and it, you know, they've, they've gone on a, a massive acquisition spree of of purchasing traditional, you know, uh, clinics and uh, and converting them into their 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 service model. But I also know they've bought a bunch of um, uh, technology companies that are actually servicing the, the health space as well. Cool. And what after the buyout, after the sale to PayPal, what did you do next? I, I had left right before the sale. Um, um, I'd left in 2013. Um, we, uh, I was always intrigued about the way the city works. Um, still to this day, consumes way too much of my brain cell just thinking about city and living in the city and how it all works. Um, and uh, I was always intrigued about the way interf people interfaced with each other. Very specifically, I shared with you how I grew up in in, in Alexandria. It was this low-rise, five-unit, um, uh, you know, building, and we just helped each other. We were different from different walks in life, you know, the next door family had kids that are much older than me. So they're all out and about, and I'm the one who's running around buying them, um, buying them, you know, bread, and knocking on the doors of everybody else. Hey, I'm going to go buy bread. Anybody else needs bread and, you know, milks and all that kind of stuff. Right. So really, um, grew up with that type of community in our building and every single building and people may not know this, but Egypt's incredibly dense. I mean, um, when I grew up in Egypt in the eighties, um, Pretty sure the numbers were 96% of the population lived on 5% of the land. And the joke is, well, why is the rest empty? Yeah. You know, And it's obviously because it's desert. It's not inhabitable at the time anyways, um, due to the fact that everything was around the Nile. You live around the Nile because that's where, where you know, living can be, uh, agriculture and, and, and other infrastructure. Uh, that's changed. I think they're up to 20% now of the land, which is great. Still crazy when you consider. Um, so this densification really creates a lot of challenges, but amazing opportunities, especially within the building. So it just, it's kind of a foregone conclusion if you grow up in a small building or a big building that everybody kind of leans on everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business and everybody tries to help everybody. And, uh, and that, that was something that when I first came to Canada, I really missed. I, I like it was it was evident to me that the relationship between neighbors in when I first moved here was very different than the relationship I experienced growing up in Egypt. Not necessarily that it was it was um, like a negative experience. It wasn't anything that somebody was 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 doing. I actually felt that it was something that people weren't doing, you know, how come we're not helping each other? How come we're knocking, not knocking each other's door? And, and when, when you do what is now categorized an act of kindness, you know, knocking on the door, is everything okay? Can I help with something? Whatever. Um, it kind of, it just wasn't happening enough for my liking, frankly, uh, from what I've observed here. And, um, and I've always been curious about what could potentially um, these communities look like. I mean, you've—I don't need to tell you—you've been—you've been, you've been uh, involved in in probably delivering. I don't know what the number is. You don't need to tell me, but thousands of homes to people. Like you've—you've you've been there mm -hmm. when when the rubber hits the road. When somebody takes this, you know, 
concrete walls and hardwood floors. And this goes from this unit to a home. And, you know, that's only the beginning of that experience. And once people move in, what happens? Who's their neighbor? What, what amazing, you know, um, we call them collisions. It's opportunity for people to connect and, and meet each other. What's that opportunity like? Yeah, and um, I've always been intrigued about that. I, I I didn't have any answers other than I know what I was seeking, and then it would get triggered every time I'd meet somebody. Uh, tended to be, for whatever reason, it always tended to be more females than males that would always say, "Oh my God, I moved to Vancouver. It's just a cold city. I don't get to meet people." And uh, I've heard like, this. Yeah, you've recently heard this. from a neighbor that moved here from Toronto. And yeah. Cassidy's nodding like that was her experience too. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, I, I, yeah, you're right. I, I experienced that. I thought it was just, you know, me. And, and, you know, more and more people move into those buildings and people still have the same commentary. And, yeah. uh, and I, I remember, um, you know, this, this, this concept of, of being, you know, uh, you, you just don't know, like you hear it. And then the, Van, the Vancouver Foundation did this study and I think it was 2010, maybe 2011. And the study was why Vancouver is a cold city. And I was like, oh, you oh. gotta be kidding me. Like, I, I thought I was crazy, going crazy yeah. here. And you read it and, you know, and it was a really fascinating view on- Cheers. Cheers. Um, uh, a fascinating view on why is it and why do people feel that way and what could be done. And they actually came up with some clever ideas and a lot of them got parked in the back of my head for one day when the time is right to implement some of these similar concepts, but you know, they would do like these, you know, community, if you live in this community, you can apply for a grant. It could be a $500 for, to, to kind of finance a day of the neighbors coming to do something together and get to know each other. Yeah. Um, and you do, do multiple of these different concepts. And, and I always felt like this concept of collisions, this concept of people getting to know each other, how many people in that building can help each other? How many people in this building, you know, how many people in this building are guitar players and how many kids would love to learn guitar yeah. how many people are can can babysit and how many moms or dads would Need love it. to find a babysitter but they just don't don't feel you know comfortable yeah. with it or i can go on and you can see all the neighborly things yeah but it's your experience social. selling uh half million or trying to sell half million dollar gps systems and the power of the internet right like if you just communicate to a broader audience really efficiently you know, what you can accomplish. And then this is the thought that post TO is sort of on your mind related to how people live in community. Yeah. And I tell you, I, it's funny you bring it up within this context because I see the internet in a very, very, very different lens than, than certainly my own kids or majority of the people I interface with see it. Um, like, you know, like people think when it comes to the internet, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, your TikTok and your Facebook and, you know, it's all the infrastructure, the social infrastructure, you know, social media infrastructure that we know of. I, to me, they're just like a little islands. I, I actually see the internet as this connectivity infrastructure that, that allows us to do interesting things. You know, back in the day, it was, it was, it was allowing people to connect and now it's, you know, it became ubiquitous. So it became allowing people to make payments. Um, it's, uh, you know, you know, what well is doing is trying to make health better and what we're trying to do in, in our company tribe, which is trying to make pe the way people live better. Like I'm constantly looking at the internet as this kind of industrious infrastructure that can really impact people's lives mm -hmm. versus how many TikTok videos can I 
binge on. And don't get me wrong, I do get in the rabbit hole sometimes when I look at one of my kids' accounts and we're hanging out and they're showing me this and that. I could just like anybody else can can get in there and find it funny, amusing, or silly. But but there's this other aspect of technology, specifically the web and its its infrastructure and the tools that have been been available to be built on that I just see as, as of course, like that's a no brainer for us to use technology to fix some of these big life problems. Right. Mm -hmm. So how did that manifest? I mean, you saw this opportunity, this, 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 this is a bit broken. People living together, can't communicate. Um, and what was your approach? Romantic. It was very romantic approach. I, uh, I thought. <laughs> so curious. <laughs> Not what I expected I, you to say. You know, I, I, uh, I mean it, I, I mean it within the context of, I, I took a very ideal thought. I thought everybody probably feels the same way. And, uh, if you build, you know, a piece of technology that's really designed at its core to connect neighbors, that people will just absolutely use it. And, uh, and I was a little naive, maybe a little too romantic in that. I thought people would just ignore all the logistical challenges of living and just focus on that part of it. But then, you know, you go within a context of a building that's, let's say it's a strata building or a stratified or condo corporations, however, wherever you are in the country, it's, it's, it's the same, like a condo, basically. It's the same interchangeable word. Um, there is a lot of other complications associated with that building other than just the lack of social connectivity, right? There is, there's, you know, people getting hold of things, people understanding the laws and bylaws and the rules and regulation and amenities, amenities and compliance. Yeah. And so, so when I got into it, I really wanted to focus on that social connectivity piece. Um, and then I, I got kind of got thrown back in my face that you can't do that unless you can't create harmony in this community, unless you really solve some of the logistical problems of the community. Oh. And that's how the, the pie got bigger as it pertains to our eyesight. So it's, it's certainly not the most um, elegant way to tell our story. You know, I'd like to come and tell you, oh, we saw the problem and we identified it this way. So we built tools for, we ended up doing that, but yeah. that's the truth. Of the matter is just to be completely transparent. I went into this problem trying to solve the social connectivity piece. Yeah. And I ended up taking on a much bigger problem yeah. within the problem. Right? No doubt. And that was the start of Bazinga. That was the start of Bazinga. So Bazinga started as a pure software company yeah. that was um, a platform that was designed to digitize the homes, uh, the condos and the buildings and all its affairs, all its community amenities, requirements, rules, regulations. And then, um, and then from that, it had a social layer that allowed it allowed people to connect and, and learn more about the neighborhood and, and the building and, and each other. Um, and then what became a lot more evident to us is that we needed to add more and more of the utility layer to the application. Is that when we first met? Yes. Bazinga starting, and I agreed cool. with you. That yes. It was needed and, yes. and it was a huge opportunity. Yes, we met, um, it would have been around the 2013 yeah. time. I think our first product hit the market uh, late 2013, early 2014, our first application. And Ani was building. one of your first clients. Boza, Ani, and uh, I think Boza specifically, I remember Daryl Simpson, the gentleman that works at, at Boza, was sat in my office, looked at me, goes, I don't know if you gotta get it over the line, but if you get it over the line, we'll put it in our first building <laughs> as soon as it's ready. Yeah. We did get it over the line. So yeah, we've, we've been fortunate to work with some of the great uh, developers. And that's cool. And then it, it grew. It grew uh, in terms of like kind of the scope of the, like you said, the problems that needed to be solved. Um, 
how did Bazinga become tribe and why? So we, we um, became more and more of a go-to platform for people building brand new communities. So developers building brand new condos and they would, um, they would come to us, we would digitize it all for them. And instead of them handing over a manual to the, to the new buyer, they would just, just let them download the app and, and all the data would be there. Mm-hmm. Plus we built a really cool back office deficiency management tool to allow the walkthroughs and the move-ins and all that stuff to be completely digitized and managed on behalf of the developer and given the new homeowner a peace of mind. Um, and then, then we started to interface a lot with the property management company. So a lot of the buildings that we sold these products into got completed, finished, people are moving in and the property management companies now are taking over that relationship with the strata or the councils. And that's when we got to see the good, bad and ugly. We got to see great property managers really on top of the technology, on top of the tickets and, and using the technology the way we envisioned it. And then the outcome of that was, was what makes me smile, which is, you know, people then starting to use a platform to connect. And I can tell you literally thousands, maybe thousands, I don't know, hundreds, not thousands of stories to, of, of people connecting on the platform, doing things for each other, helping each other, you know, you know, the euros, let's book the amenity down there. It's France playing, you know, Italy, let's go watch this game. And it just kind of created amazing of these collisions of these moments. Mm-hmm. And then, the, but we also got to see some property management companies use the technology or not use the technology at all, or find it to introduce too much transparency, or they didn't want people to communicate as often. Really old school. Very old school. Yeah. And um, most of the time it's it's for just fear of the technology. And in some cases, maybe there's there's more of lack of desire to have transparency everywhere. Yeah. I, I don't know. But whatever it was, it was evident to me that we really needed to have a good hard look at how property management is done. Mm-hmm. And um, I went back to my uh, board and, and my shareholders and I said, look, um, we can continue building great piece of software, we'll keep building more features and, and keep working with developers. Um, and, uh, but we will be hit or miss when it comes to what happens when the community is up and running and operating. Plus I felt like, you know, the number of existing communities and on the globe under that model is so big, more and more people living in these communities that I'd like to have a platform that allows us to go into a community that's 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old. And, and it's tough to do that unless you are the property management company itself. So give me, I ask for six months to go away, uh, travel, visit um, how the biggest city um, uh, operate in the globe, operate around strata management, the actual legal entity that is called strata management. And I'll, I'll, I'll save you the, the book. It's not being managed by any means anywhere close to how Canada has it, right? So, so this was the biggest takeaway was this, wow, Canada is way ahead oh, really? of everybody else when it comes to strata rules. And ironically, it's BC is way ahead than anywhere else in the globe practically anywhere really? else in the globe when it comes to our strata regulation. Other major cities just have less rules and it's just Yeah, whatever. so the whole concept of real estate, the Real Estate Act and the rules and regulations that kind of uh, govern how these communities are managed just never been made to all the way to from A to Z. And I think it's a function of BC specifically in the late 80s, early 90s, as you may remember uh, with the leaky condos kind of became this massive problem 
that the government had to get involved with, you know, because, you know, you, you owned a 50,000, you know, dollar condo, but you had special levy or special assessment of 120,000. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, what do you do? And it, back in the day, it was interest rates probably with like 15% or something. So it was just a, it was a situation where the government had to come in and say, well, well, well hold on a second here. We've got to bring some order to the way this relationship is. These special levies have to be managed in a specific way. Mr. Developer, we expect you to be responsible in a specific way. We'll update the building codes, but for those existing communities that need these big projects, this is how it's gonna go. Property managers, you are got to be licensed. You gotta, you gotta let them know and guide them through this process. Um, we expect everybody to pay their you know, fair share, but it's gonna be based on square footage. And by the way, there's something called CRF. You should really start paying attention to this and put money aside for a rainy day and so on and so forth. So I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't close to the industry. I was barely in the country to really have been watching it closely, but the outcome of that in the nineties is a suite of, you know, governing bodies and, and rules and regulations and best practices that developers or existing communities have to adhere to. And it actually brings a significant amount of harmony and order as much as it's pain in the neck. It's probably not a single listener that doesn't recognize a problem with the strata or, so it's hard to mm -hmm. begin with, but at least most of the problems have been, there's a foresight for them and there's a path to, to resolution. Even, even <clears throat> British Columbia is the first place in the globe to introduce this civil tribunal platform that allows you to go on and 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 uh, online and, and and you know kind of put your you know grievances of your issue with the strata and strata can communicate and they actually bring in somebody an expert a legal person that can actually uh, give you a, a judgment on it like these are way ahead of anywhere else you go to new york there's nothing like that you go to dubai there's nothing like that dubai doesn't even have a complete method of passing on the title of the land where the building is is built to the strata corporation. Oh, wow. um, they keep it with the developer simply because they want the developer to be on the hook for any problems in the future. Um, so, you know, you go there, that's a really interesting thing. The Middle East is, is, is growing in terms of density and still catching up. So they actually looked for cues here in, in, in British Columbia. Um, Latin America is, is catching up, it's still not there. Europe, <clears throat> as much as it's ironic because you would, you know, usually you think of Europe, you think of, you know, places, you know, this, these condos or, 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 or uh, apartment units in these buildings is something that Europe has had for, you know, 100 years or 150 years. Um, but they never really had the regulation to go with it. So there's no, there's best practices, but there's no real genuine infrastructure for it. So um, that was kind of a unique thing. So I, I spent six months on that and I came back and I said, look, let's, um, let's, let's redesign what a service delivery looks like in property management. And what if we became a brand new property management company? And um, and uh, it's kind of a company that's tech, tech first, um, uh, really focused on customer service and this interactive uh, living that we've discussed. And um, and they said, yeah, go ahead. So, you know, I created a new brand called Tribe. And the intent there was Bazinga as a software company was known nationally. And uh, Tribe, because of the regulation could only operate in the lower mainland. So I didn't want to come up with the name Bazinga property management operate in the lower mainland because everybody else would be like, well, how come you're not in Toronto? How come you're not in Alberta where we're actually servicing those customers just purely from a software point of view? So we first put the tribe property management uh, brand here in 2018, January 2018 was the launch. 
and we've never looked back and, you know, we've almost got almost 40,000 homes under management, uh, condos, um, or apartment units. And we're, I think we're the fifth largest in the country now. And wow. We're, we're only the third national player. There's the two yeah. big players that are, uh, American players that are national and then us. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, and, and since 2018. Since 2018, correct. Yeah. So you're a software company that starts like, it's almost like if you can't join them, beat them, kind of the opposite of the right. traditional yeah. expression, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you start doing it and you start buying up uh, companies. I know of Gateway, right. um, which was a big one. And there's been several others, I guess. Is there some strategic value? I mean, to the entrepreneurs that are listening, is there some strategic value in, when you're in business and you're, I mean, that's a pivot. The pivot term is overused, it's right. abused, frankly. But that's a legit pivot, right? You're doing yeah. one thing, you're providing one solution, a software solution to to solve a problem and realizing that the implementers aren't totally bought in and there's, there's quite a bit of friction. Um, so let's just see it all the way through. Um, that's a pivot. That's a big one. And so is there, is there any entrepreneurs listening that can maybe benefit from like how you came to think that was the right idea? Like, is there a business reason? Is there like, uh, you know, you're a software company is valued as a function of revenue and should entrepreneurs be looking for other ways to capture revenue, to add more value or to create more value in their company? Is that part of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I always say in, in, in real estate, like the prop tech space, if you know, property technology, we yeah. just call it prop tech, as, as you know. Um, it's tough because there's so many opportunities. I call it the shiny objects, right? Like you're walking in a place and it's just your focus. You're trying to go from, you know, one spot to another. And as you're walking, you just keep seeing the shiny objects, which I, you know, for an entrepreneur, it's basically either revenue opportunities or product opportunities or go-to-market opportunities. You just constantly look Feature left and right. Creep, all that stuff. Exactly. And um, I'd say that was a really interesting challenge for myself um, as I was making some decisions around not only pivoting, but also product growth. Um, and you need to be able to identify those uh, either distractions or, or, or low-hanging fruits, slow or quick wins that will slow you down even though they're great wins or quick wins, um, from what's strategic to your final outcome. And I, I won't pretend to say that we've nailed that, you know, path. So if, you know, if you're going from A to B, I'm not convinced you're going to see a perfectly straight line, how, you know, you know, I or, or the company has gone from where we started to where we ended up. I'm not sure it's a straight line, but it's generally straight meaning we didn't really pivot left and right too much, although we did get yeah, a maybe, lot of yeah, opportunities. Yeah, not the right word. Maybe you just stayed in exactly the direction you were going and just went deeper. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably a really good way to describe it. I think, I think you, what you got to identify is how much stomach do you have and are you right or wrong with your feeling about taking your product and services further? That's really what the, these are the questions that we kept getting asked. Mm -hmm. And it would, you know, we kept getting and hitting against the wall of it's, it's property management. It's just how it's done. It's just how it's been done for 50 years. It's yeah. just the way it's been done for 30 years. Or longer. Or longer, yeah. right? And, and you know, okay, so things changed. You know, 50 years ago, they didn't have faxes or, you know, whatever. And they went to faxes and they went from faxes to phones and from phones to 
now they you do the same thing, but they do it on from Blackberries to iPhones, right? Like, but what is really the game changing way of service delivery here? And we identified that as a big opportunity, like a really big opportunity. But I will go back, going back to your question, I think the 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 focus is really important, but having the big vision or having the stomach to have to ask yourself the tough question of should we be doing more? That's really where I think a massive opportunity exists. And it's not in every industry, right? I mean, I mean, I always, you know, always speak about, as I always say, I've never been pitched or pitched somebody without hearing the word Uber somewhere, right? Because it's the, the most um, obvious disruption right, that, that we can all live and feel. But, you know, they didn't set out to own the ride. They didn't. They didn't want to own the ride. They didn't. They wanted cap companies, black limo companies. Oh, um, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they did not. They did not want to own the ride. They literally just wanted to convince, you know, people to get rid of the old style dispatching where you call somebody, dispatcher takes a call and actually create a direct connectivity between the supply and demand, but they didn't want to care about the car. They didn't want to make sure the car smells good. Yeah. They didn't want to do any of that. They just wanted you to use their platform. And they were bang on in their assessment that they were going to be able to connect supply and demand in a much more efficient way. Where they weren't bang on is, is convincing the cap companies at the time to get to give them 10% or 15% or 20%. Yeah. I don't know what the number was. I think it's probably closer to 15%. Some similarity there, right? Yes. And I, it's not my way of saying we're Uber. It's my way of saying, here's an interesting problem that they interfaced with. Yeah. And then eventually they're like, well, if that's the case, why? And everybody hates the experience anyways. It's not like, like I remember very clear, again, old enough to have seen New York without before Uber and New York with Uber. I remember the days where I would land in New York, I would take um, the Red Eye, the Cathay Pacific that gets you there at six in the morning. And because the company didn't have any money, I would, I would get there at six o'clock in the morning. So by the time I'm in Manhattan, it's about eight o'clock. I have my meetings and I fly back out that night. So I don't have to get a hotel that's that's too expensive. Uh, that probably took a few years off my life. But yeah. but I would do this at Red Eye and I would land. And you know my heart and my level of anxiety would start increasing as I'm walking outside the airport because I know if an ATM isn't working and I can't pull US cash, I'm gonna have a hell of a time with that driver when he says to me, oh, it's 40 bucks and I gotta give him my credit card. And he's gonna look at me and he's like, oh, I don't have my credit card machine doesn't work because he wants the cash. And like, it was, it's always a terrible experience. Yeah. Cap would smell and it was just like, oh, I just dreaded that experience. And that changed and you know, you go into Uber and you know, the rest is history. So, so give them incredible amount of credit. Think of how much work that must have been from an infrastructure point of view to decide that we're going to bring those those drivers on board but we're going to also apply rules and you know around that hey yeah. car has to be clean and has to be new and has to be this and has to be that and i'm not saying it's a perfect company but it's a good example of somebody going deeper into the problem not just connecting supply and demand but actually now completely taking over the experience of the ride yeah, but it's also no smaller leap to be a software company that's probably has a similar perception of property management as I do, that it's about custodial work and electrical repairs and a lot of plumbing and, and roof replacement and repairs and, and all that kind of stuff. And like, are we really a software company that's going to get into that business? Perhaps the polar opposite of, of high tech? Correct. And, and, and that was, uh, that's a lot of sleepless nights, those conversations, yeah. right? And um, for all fairness, we 
found um, inspiration from a lot of great tech-backed services companies that was going to the market that kind of illustrated to us that we're not crazy, you know, like, like um, you know, again, examples of Uber, Airbnb, and all these types of companies, they kind of, they're a lot more responsible than just the technology. They're, the whole experience is still, you know, with them. You know, you don't usually say, I had a terrible experience with, you know, Samantha who owned Unit 201 because I Airbnb'd from her. You say, I had a bad Airbnb experience or I had an amazing Airbnb experience. Um, so, and same goes for Uber. You don't say, oh, I had a terrible experience with XYZ, the driver. I'm never going to get him again. You're never thinking that. You're thinking it was a bad experience with Uber. And 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 these, these, these brands created such equity with you, trust with you, that even if you have a bad experience, just move on. You just, you know, you're going to do it again anyways, because you just know it's a better solution. So, you know, within the service world, you know, fast forward, there's things like Angie's List, this two-way marketplaces that started to take on more than just connecting the dots between two companies or between a supply and demand. Um, so we saw some of that inspirational um, options out there uh, in, in the market. And we can see that that was it was coming. My fear was I hadn't seen anything like that in the property management space. And I was like, are we crazy are we is there a reason why are we first or are we wrong are we exactly uh, and are we first and wrong yeah. which would be even worse so um so we we um and the answer thankfully has been that we were we were first but i can see that it wasn't necessarily um that everybody else didn't think about doing it it just wasn't a mother of an undertaking it was just one of those things we look at like if you sit down and look at the operations of a building and you, that's not going to be something new to you. Like if you look at just an operations of a building and try to think the different stakeholders in that building, right? So, you know, any of those fancy buildings, the downtown core, you know, three, 400 people living in there. Some of the units are people that own the unit that live in it. Some, you know, 30% are probably going to be rented out to another third party. Maybe there's a concierge, a whole bunch of people that work in the buildings, the property manager is not on site. They erected this councils and, and, and the councils are, you know, the board that makes decisions on behalf of the community. And then there's all these, these service providers that are remote that come in to do specific things and it has to work like clockwork. And all the bills on behalf of that building have to be paid once a month or, or, or more frequently. And then every single homeowner has needs. And these needs could be as basic as booking amenities room for, you know, Johnny's birthday party, or it could be as complicated as, Oh my God, we got a leak and the water's down and, you know, we got to evacuate, right? Um, how do you take that and not only apply technology to it, but also own the responsibility to bring harmony to it? And, you know, and, and then, and then you, you, you go crazy like us and have a, a tagline, like, you know, we have management with heart, right? And not only you're taking an industry that nobody has any good feelings about and now you're, coming out you're nice and yellow and happy and sunny and telling everybody we're going to do this with heart oh we're straight up telling you with a straight face with a straight face we are going to do this with heart yeah um that has been challenged no doubt. um and it's been tough and and you know the data tells us that we've done a very very good job um people vote with their wallets um with their comments but it's also a world where you know an angry person is a lot louder than, than, of course. than, you know, 10 happy people, right? So I could tell you many stories around that, but that's that's when you know you're onto something is when 
when A, you bring people from the industry and tell them this is what we want, are you guys interested in being a part of this or not? And by the way, we're not gonna, in the beginning anyways, we're not gonna pay you as well as everybody else pays you, but we're gonna give you a different environment, gonna give you, give you a different culture. And I'm so blessed with the group uh, of people that, that, that saw the vision and wanted to be a part of it. And, uh, and then you, you, know, you start seeing it from there. And, but you also can't be stubborn. I mean, it's, it's always tough. It's always tough. The, 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 the clips that always make it on, you know, going back to TikTok or whatever, those clips that everybody sees, it's this, you know, this, this person walking in their own way, right? Yeah. And there's something admirable about this guy that saw something that nobody else saw, or this woman that decided to go left when everybody else went right. Yeah. Um, and there's just something, you know, kind of, of, of attractive to that material, right? Of, wow, yeah, you can just do this. You have the vision, you're going to do it. But there is also a line of stubbornness that can exist in there. And there's good stubbornness and bad stubbornness. And, and, and I, I don't know when, when, you know, our day comes and we completely reflect on the journey of tribe, whether we were good stubborn or bad stubborn, but you don't get to success with bad stubborn. I mean, so, you, you know, we could have illustrated some bad, you know, bad stubborn through the way, but, but there are moments I remember clearly where I felt alone in decision-making and, 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 and unreasonable maybe in, in some of the decision-making, but it's proven to be right. And there's ones that are proven to be wrong. Right? What's the difference between good stubborn and bad stubborn? It seems to me that good stubborn is being stubborn when you're right. And bad stubborn is being stubborn when you're wrong. Is that it? Or is the there problem is at the moment you don't know, yeah. you don't know if you're right or wrong. You're just convinced you're right. Yeah. Often, often you are, I think. I think good stubborn, and, and these are terms that are definitely not defined anywhere because it's just words that we use, yeah. I use, but um, good stubborn is, is when your why is very clear, right? So, so you, you, you're making a yeah. decision that is against the, the, the room or against the executive team or against um, your shareholders or against even sometimes your customers. Yeah. But but your, your why is very clear. Yeah, you like don't know if you're right, but you know you're doing it for the right reason. You're doing it for the right reason. You just don't know if it's gonna end up being the right decision or yeah. not. And we're just experiencing that right now. And and we're being, now in this case, it wasn't a, a one-man stubbornness, it's a company stubbornness. And we just announced it. And um, we haven't you know spoken much about it. It's not like material, but it's material to our staff. We've just introduced a Friday flex day for our property manager. We'll call them community managers. So this, so profile people, like let's, let's give you a profile of a community manager who, who we, we have tens of, right, in our organization now. This is a person who wakes up with an inbox probably with 50 tickets in it, right? And it's even with use, use of technology, right? Probably a bunch of voicemails and a bunch of administrative things that they have to do on behalf of the community. There could be managing, you know, 400, $500 million worth of assets. And that's really what they're doing. Their job is to not only manage these assets on behalf of these communities, but also guide them as decisions are needed to be made. Like how many lawyers do you know wake up in the morning with that responsibility on their plate? Not, not many, no. Not many. No. Yeah, this property manager, everybody looks down upon, everybody thinks and doesn't appreciate what they really do for this community. Mm -hmm. Then they wake up and then somebody wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, one of their potential homeowner who doesn't even understand sometimes the mechanics of decisions that are being made on behalf of the councils, not the property management company. 
and they're calling and they're maybe sometimes abusive or, or whatever the case may be. And they have to deal with that. So mental health, especially through the pandemic, has been a big, big topic for us and a big challenge for us because we're trying to keep, and, and the whole industry, by the way, is leaking property managers. Like way more people leave the industry than come into the industry. So we're trying to make it a more desirable job. We're trying to make it a more, we're trying to make our company, I hope for the whole industry, to be a family, great culture, and recognize the incredible value of what a what a community manager does or a property manager does. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that without really, you can say it, but you gotta really act it. So one of the things we've done is we've recognized that they actually never get a weekend. And it's funny, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you ever go on vacation and you're, you know, after, and you just, you did a big sprint of work, right? You know, you're going on vacation. So you just kicked your butt for two, three days before, or maybe a week or two. Yeah. And then you go on this vacation and your first two days, you're completely burnt out. And yeah. you don't even know what the heck happened. You don't remember what you ate. You don't remember, you can't even hang out with the kids. It's just a disaster, right? And then you're like, oh, you know what? Day three or day four? is when I really started to feel like I'm on relaxed, vacation, yeah. right? So imagine now if your job is constantly sprinting for five days, then Friday comes and then Saturday comes and you're still having a lot of imbalance because now people are home and they're like, oh, my property manager has to be able to answer my questions. Yes. What do you mean? I'm, I'm home, they yeah. should be able to answer my questions. And they might on a good weekend get like half a weekend off, right? Yeah. And then before you know it, it's Monday. You gotta go all over again. And and these people go to night meetings. And you know, you know, the, the traditional problems that can occur, like God forbid, fire or flood, or you know, they're they're constantly mm -hmm. reachable. So technology can play a role, and we are working on that and you know, ticketing and and self-service tools so people don't always have to reach out to you, but you're still responsible for a lot of homes. So what we're doing is we introduced it yesterday and uh, my uh, executive vice president of, of strata for the whole nation introduced that program and it's a flex friday on friday no customer can get a hold of you and we are going to tell our customers that we're going to tell them we will it's not we're not leaving you alone we have all the tools and the ability to escalate and everything but on friday our property managers are going to be looking inwards they're going to work but they're going to address their administrative stuff. They're going to take the temperature down. They're going to get psychologically in a place they can be with their children on Saturday and Sunday and be completely recharged and ready to go on Monday. It's never been done in our industry. Wow. Now, there's some interesting stuff that's been done. You know, tech companies a lot of times will do, you know, four-day weekends and, or three-day weekends and stuff like that. But it's easier said than done. When you're mm -hmm. coding, is different than when you're, you've got 40,000 homes that are presenting 100,000 people that yeah. need help, right? So that was a... That's not gonna, that's not an easy thing to decide to do. No. Because none of your competitors are doing that. Yeah. If anything, your competitors are, I'm not gonna say lying, but they're gonna tell anybody that will listen that they'll be there seven days a week. And you see your customer as the homeowner or the tenant? Correct. And they might not like it. They may not like it. But but the, the, the way we see it is as follows. If you believe that the service delivery model that we've got, inclusive of our technology and our people, is way beyond any experience you've had. And that's what we've been told, right? Then we must protect the biggest assets we have. And the biggest assets we have are those people that I believe know more about 
you know, strata and, 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 and healthy living than most lawyers do in the space. And we don't pay them the same way. We don't treat them the same way. We don't give them the respect that they deserve the same way. Somebody has to start. And it might as well be, you know, maybe a, a, a well-heeled company like us that's growing fast, that has an edge um, where, where, you know, our leadership isn't pulling money every year out of the business. And we just, we got to, you know, hit better numbers next year. And you know what I mean? Obviously we're, we're very financially uh, responsible, but, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to change the industry. Our goal is to, to um, unpack all the problems in the industry and also introduce new revenue streams from an industry that's already spending money elsewhere, mm-hmm. but might as well actually have it spent with us. Mm-hmm. Attract better people. And that is, you know, and, 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 you know, I, a, I, I think there is, you know, you know, I'm thinking, I'm just going back to where we started the conversation. So my son is 18 years old, just got accepted at BCIT and I know familiar with the business management program in the second year. So it's a full degree, but usually second and third year, you can choose, you know, which vertical you want to go into. And I remember clearly, you know, the real estate development is one. And, and, uh, I think it's overall, it's called the real estate side. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I remember when I used to go to, went to BCIT a long time ago, there'd be a lot of people on the real estate side, right? And where do they go? And when you speak to a lot of those younger graduates from all the different schools, you know, Sauter, SFU, or what have you, they're like, oh, I, I actually think this kind of property management is really interesting, but everybody looks down on it. And it sounds like you get burnt out and I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. But we've been able to attract MBAs and degree holders in business to property management as a company. We've been able to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't want those people to burn out. And by the way, we're not perfect. We're not batting a thousand. Mm-hmm. We've burned some of them out. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't begin to tell you how difficult it is mm-hmm. to see somebody that came three, four years ago and they're like, they were 23, 24, and then now they're 27, 28. And you, you like, I, I wanted them to be, I wanted this to become the career for them, but they just got burnt out because maybe just maybe. We weren't stubborn enough in some of our decisions. Maybe, maybe this program we just introduced should have been introduced two years ago. I'm not sure we were ready, but here we are. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, that's the the source of of that investment. So, so it really comes down to, you know, if your why is very clear, and my why is very clear in this decision. And I'm not taking credit for the decision, by the way. Meaning, I commissioned the decision, but the decision was made by by our executive management team and they deserve all the credit for it. But, but the reason we commissioned it is because it is the right thing to do for our staff and we know it's the right thing to do for our customers. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of other property management companies that are cheaper than us. And if that's the right solution, you know, if 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 you really you go to sleep thinking to yourself, you know what, I wish we can pay $2 less a month per home to another property management company that doesn't have the technology, doesn't have the culture, mm-hmm. doesn't have the drive to make sure people are healthy. Maybe not. And go, yeah. just go, right? So. so is your why to change the industry? That's what yeah. I heard. Is there more? Our our why is, yeah, our, our the crux of our why is to really make, make living in these communities, you know, richer, yeah. better. Yeah. Really, that's our why. Yeah. We just don't think we can get there without the industry yeah. making changes yeah. and and putting that customer at a, not necessarily at a pedestal, but at a, at a different service delivery model than they're accustomed to. Yeah. I admire it, man. It's, it, it's property management blows. Like I know <laughs> from personal experience because <laughs> I, uh, I had to sell, I sold your company, our portfolio of properties when right. I had a property management company. Right. 
I was terrible at it. I just, I found it difficult. Um, you know, it's the complaints department. It's, it wasn't exciting to me. Yeah. Um, all of the things that people think about it when they look at it from the outside are mostly true. Yeah. Um, so that you've grown the fifth biggest one in the country in, in less than four years is unbelievable. Um, and that you even tackled it, especially from the starting place of being a software company is, is makes me think that Maybe there's other entrepreneurs out there that are looking for opportunities that maybe should kick around in the weeds. Not that the property management industry is the weeds, but but maybe it is, you know, like maybe the greatest opportunities are in the muck where nobody else wants to be. Biggest success stories around this um, from, a, from a disruption point of view, and it's overused word, but it does apply. So there's a reason why it's overused. Um, was the taxi. Nobody wanted to be in the taxi business. Nobody wanted to be in the roommate business, which really Airbnb started in San Francisco, was actually renting a room out, um, you know, and, 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 and so on and so forth. There's plenty of these type of examples. That is the weed. That is the, the you know, achy stuff. That's the, you know, a lot of this, this you know, cleaner two-way marketplaces that needed to be fixed. I mean, Finding a cleaner should never be as difficult as it is to somebody to come and do the service. And, mm. and it should be a dignified experience. It shouldn't be looked down upon. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, there are a lot of the, you know, one of the great success stories out of the city is 1-800-GOT-DRUNK. And it didn't even run away from the name, right? Like, they, mm. that is, a, you know, that's a great example of taking something that was difficult and gross, gross and yeah. garbage. And, you know, and, and they've, they've just completely... Uh, done an amazing job by bringing, uh, you know, some some solid thinking around delivering service. Um, yeah, I would I would one hundred percent agree with that. I would I'd say, and don't get me wrong, there's a place for incredible Web three and NFTs and metaverses and all the good stuff. I mean, I'm intrigued about that stuff just like the next guy. And and um, what is Web three you know, this con it's, it's infrastructure. I mean, Web 2.0 and then Web 3.0 would be like- well, 1.0 was like brochure level one-way information. Right. 2.0 is the interactive aspect of exactly. the development of the internet. Is 3.0 like- the Is living on the internet. That's kind of what, what a lot of, like the NFT world where every aspect of your current- Just whole economies world. and worlds, everything's Correct. There. It's, yeah. it's uh, you know, it'll, there'll be a version of that, I think, um, the next decade or not. It'll probably be something a lot more relevant to our kids than it is to us. Yeah. But but it's uh, it's it's a fascinating concept. I, I I can't help fear its why. You know, um, I, you know, I, just like anybody else, I like to escape. My escape might be going and watching a soccer game or playing a soccer game for those two hours. I'm I'm not thinking of yeah. my problems. It's mental, whatever. It's mental, right? Yeah. Um, but this concept of escaping to another world where I can be um, someone who is different. And, you know, that's an interesting concept for me. I'm not, I'm not at peace with it yet. Um, but that's really, and I'm not saying that's the only driver uh, or driving force of, of metaverse, but, but that's an interesting concept, this concept of global presence. Some, there's some really cool things, this concept of, you know, you know, you know, Cam and Joe are good friends and Joe decides to move back to Egypt and, and you and I can get on a virtual table like this and hang out together and the kids can come by and that's kind of a cool interesting concept mm -hmm. i think there's massive opportunities from a learning point of view mm -hmm. um i think this kind of uh, uh, kind of emerging uh concepts of, of of submerging yourself in a place that you'll never probably go on your own i remember when my father was was, was really sick 
um, there's a couple of spots in the world that I knew he wanted to go and I, and I just didn't, he just wasn't able to get on a plane. And that would be interesting years from now, decades from now, where you can maybe put a, this glasses on and literally feel like you're there. That's mm-hmm. an interesting concept, right? Yeah. Um, learning, I think learning, whether it's, 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 uh, uh, you know, uh, special needs and, or just traditional learning. What are we learning about education? What are we learning about quote unquote learning? Um, is that not every kid learns the same way. And we've, you know, we've had this traditional, you can learn any way you want, as long as you're in class by 8.30 and it's the room looks like this and everybody's going to hear the same teacher saying the same exact example. And, and, you know, I, I, I certainly struggled in many learning some things growing up and I was as traditional of a child as, as can be. Um, I can only imagine now with what we know about, you know, like, you know, you, you, as you kids hit the teenager years and you start reading and you know, teenagers should not be taught in the morning. It's actually well documented, right? But yet we pack them up in the car. They're all groggy, throw them some, you know, whatever toast with some jam or something or some cereal and you drop them off in the school and they're at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. But the data shows us they start learning best at 11 o'clock. Yeah. But you go tell the world that we're going to, hey, mom yeah. and dad, your kids are going to be learning from 11 to 5, right? Yeah. That's their sweet spot. That's not going to work for us. So I see the metaverse changing that. Some kids learn better with color difference. Well, you, how do you do that? Some, you know, some kids want to be in a room that's completely changed in terms of, of the environment itself. Uh, can't be in the same room every day. They want something different. And um, we, we're not really... The world, traditional world, isn't accustomed or, or, or capable of doing that, but maybe the metaverse can. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I think of these things as, as as hopes for us to to make some interesting changes. But anyway, so yeah, I don't know how we got here. But. Yeah, well, we got there. <laughs> we got there, and it's it's inevitable that we're going there. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, I had uh, a personal like uh, kind of a psychedelic journey that showed me that it wasn't as evil as it looks like from the outside. That it was. Uh, perhaps natural and inevitable and not totally wrong that it was some form of transcendence that we eventually um, leave our flesh bags and and travel elsewhere. You know, when you think about like being a kid thinking about UFOs and still thinking about it and, and, and alien visitation and, and all that kind of stuff, you, you, the concept of the flying saucer and and people actually flying here with uh, in their bodies and all the distance and all that kind of stuff is pretty far fetched. And frankly, much more likely if their technologies evolved that much to be able to do that, that they wouldn't instead just send their consciousness and their ability to sense and watch and learn instead of their physical bodies. And, and that's probably already happening is, um, you know, probably pretty likely. Um, so what the metaverse might be in my mind is just like, kind of like our first step into that direction. Right. My 11 year old Max is, is probably headed that way. You know, he's like, I watch these boys at that age and, and especially boys, but or my girl less. So she's only seven, but, um, it, it is just like a moth to a flame and that sounds kind of negative, but maybe oh, bees to honey is better. Um, but yeah, they just love it. It's better. You know, they've, they, they have friends. It's more fun. It's more exciting. The make believe aspect is like 14 out of 10, very attractive. But bringing it back to tribe, you know, the two examples that keep popping up are, um, uh, you know, you know, rolling up the sleeves, tackling an ugly industry like uh, a roommate business or taxis. 
You know, those two examples in Uber and Airbnb are, I think, pretty clearly what most people would say are in the sharing economy. Um, but it seems like you're not. But I wonder as you get a grip on and, and lead the property management business, if you will expand that vertical a little bit more and and perhaps find extra supply in babysitting and cleaning services and plumbing and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very um, good observation. And, and we, we made no secret in that we erected a, a partnership program and the partnership program was a uh, essentially the ability for us to to using using the data we have about the homes and the buildings to curate really best in class experiences and services and make that available at the fingertips of our homeowners or tenants. So we kind of you know we've we've done some really interesting stuff. Actually, one of the morning, I got, my phone was blown up today because we made an announcement. We partnered with. Uh, um, a company called Umbra City. Um, so it's it's kiosks that have umbrellas in them, and they're you you. It's a share economy concept. So you you come down the lobby, could be inside or outside. You grab an umbrella. You're already a member. It kind of unlocks the umbrella for you, and you go on your walk. And then there's another kiosk somewhere else close to where you are. It tells you on your phone where you go, and you just drop that. And it's free, and you drop the umbrella there, and it's monetizable via uh, the screens on those monitors and there's advertisement on it. So we partner with this company and and uh, we've done something similar with another partnership with a, a company that delivers um, groceries and other Let me just that. ask you about the umbrella thing. Sure. So the, the, the deal is I'm a member so that I don't have to have my own umbrella. I just use an umbrella and they're everywhere. Correct. Because you never know when you need an umbrella. Like I, I, was, I was saying, I was, I was doing a, 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 an interview this morning and, and I said, like, I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I have four umbrellas in my car. I have two in my office, probably God knows how many in my home yet i'm never with an umbrella when i need it and it's just like how did i manage to do that and it's constant like this 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 is not just once but think yeah. about it right when you're walking there you're like oh my god like how did i manage that so if you're a member of due to the fact that you're your tribe home you know you live in one of our communities you can actually just from the app for free identify where the umbrella is go grab it and if it's if your building's big enough you can actually have it in your building i just laugh i just I, this is why i love entrepreneurship i just love the person that figured that out that just was without an umbrella one day when they needed it yeah. and said what do i have to do to make sure that i always have an umbrella when i need it and that everyone who ever needs an umbrella has one at the ready. I'll introduce you because you can ask him that question. Yeah, it's, it's I awesome. got introduced to him and my very first thought is, is this really a business? Yeah. Is there a business in umbrellas, especially yeah. when it's free? And the answer is A, yes, the data is incredible. Really? The usage data. Um, so it was it was very impressive. And, uh, and you know, I think about it also from, a, so going back to your point about share economy, that's as, as obvious as of an example as any, but there's also group buying power that exists in these communities no that doubt. completely, it's almost impossible to mobilize. Like who can you, you know, 600 people live in the unit, uh, in the buildings, maybe in 200 homes. And who's going to go out there and mobilize? How do you get them all to order in the same day or agree on? So we brought in, uh, we announced that uh, a few weeks ago, a uh, pickup, free pickup. Uh, a laundry service and dry cleaning service at your at your home. Yeah. Amazing, right? Think about how complicated that usually is traditionally. And I mean, not complicated, but like it's a pain in the neck. You got to go and get your stuff and take them out and you drive and you drop them off and you pick them up. Or 
this building will drop off on Tuesday and pick up on Thursday. And it's just constant. And you know it's a service always available to you. It's group buying power. And, and, um, and then the economics of that really become really interesting because the service provider was never going to come and pick up from one unit or two units. But he certainly will go out there, not only pick up from 10 or 15 or 20, but also give him a discount because it's just saving him money. The carbon footprint totally. is a lot less. It's just a no-brainer. No-brainer. Again, we're not doing anything that's never been thought of. Nothing is brilliant about but what you're we're describing, it. but you got to execute yeah. on it. And you can't execute unless you had the footprint and you also had the engagement. You need to be able There's to- There's a critical mass. There's a tipping exactly. point where before that, it's impossible. It's impossible. Push and rope. And how do you communicate? Like yeah. at least we have the technology where we can actually you know, remind, put a reminder on the platform that tells everybody, hey, Thursday, it's time, they're here drop off your stuff. And it's something as basic as that. How easy is it to do in a traditional property management, property managed building? It's not, it's not very easy to do. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna put a little sticky on with a pad and people are gonna, you know, it's just, they try, but it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. So, so your point is well taken. I envision a place like we're being brought in more and more into these master plan communities now. And a lot of the developers are saying, what is the vision? You know, we understand what our vision will look like. We understand the amenities we're going to be bringing. Even then, they're still asking us, what are the usage of amenities in the market now? Because that's changing. And, but, but what is our digital strategy? How do these communities exist after we leave? How do they connect? Uh, how do they create harmony between them? And a lot of these questions, they, they look, they sound out there, but they're actually, there's actually, logistics around that, right? You know, are we submetering? Is the goal to give them tools to lower their carbon footprint? Can we create tools that identify that because we're closer to one of the universities, there's likelihood a lot of kids that will be commuting to the university. Can we create tools for them to find who's going where so they don't take four cars there, they take one car. Mm -hmm. um, bring in not only like, you know, one of the things we're working on now is with a couple of partnerships, bringing in this concept of, you know, uh, like a Tesla or a, or a, or a, like electric car as an amenity for the building. So it's available for everybody to use. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're, we're looking to bring some of these stuff to, into the community itself. Um, because more and more people don't want to buy cars as, as we all know, and less and less, you know, teenagers want to get their license, which is, mm -hmm. that's so different than our, you know, I was having this conversation with a couple of friends of mine, uh, on the weekend and. We're talking how the kids and they're all the same age as, as mine. And so 16, 17, 18, and, and I go, oh, so what are they up to? And, and the dad will always be like, I, I don't understand what's wrong with her. She doesn't want to go get her driver's license. She doesn't even care. Yeah. And I go, yeah, because we, you know, it's like, I, he's like, I remember the day after I was 16, I was standing in there getting my, totally. you know, light. And, and I'm like, yeah, but you didn't have Uber. Yeah. And frankly, if I can Uber everywhere, I would drive. Like, yeah. I just don't want to drive. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's a completely different, you know, it's generationally, we see things differently. And this is the new now home buyers. Yeah. They aren't necessarily interested in two parking spots in the building. And, and if they are, they're certainly interested in ones with electric plug-in so they can actually charge your car. Right. It's so much work, man. The way you have to do, I mean, figuring out the, the dry cleaner and the dog walker and the carpooling and you know, you, you start a software company and, and sure there's issues and tickets and opportunities and you find a path, but it, it seems like nothing compared to the roll up your sleeves, hard work that you have to do to figure out all of the logistics of the goings on and the ins and outs of home ownership or home renting or living in a community and neighbors and communicating. It's mind boggling. Massing up, massive opportunity. Um, 
we do it through partnerships. So we're, we're certainly not, we're never going to be good at dry cleaning or grocery delivery or any of these things. There's, there's companies that went out in the market and built best in class solutions for that. And, and just finding them, uh, partnering with them, uh, you know, ensuring that they're worthy of the opportunity that we're going to put in front of them. And, um, and then just making sure that they, and you know, we also know we're going to be on a bleeding edge in some of these services, right? Some of these services may not make sense or may not work. And someone, some service, I remember a friend of mine had a two-way marketplace and he said, Joe, I had, I can't remember the number, but for the sake of simplicity, I think he said like, we have 3000 SKUs uh, of products on, on our two-way marketplace, but we make 80% of our revenue from five SKUs. So, you know, you know, that's the truth, right? And that's, that's how often it happens, but you, you know, you, you won't know what's, you're not going to nail it unless you go out there and you put these things out in the market and mm -hmm. can be stubborn. I like your position. I mean, I look at, I see the energy and the capital that Apple and Google are putting into getting into people's homes and the value that they see there. And then I see you as owning so many aspects of the way people are living in their homes seems like it might be attractive to a company like that at some point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, again, everybody, every entrepreneur's dream is to, to somebody knocks on the door and it's, uh, who's this? It's Mr. Google. Um, I want to talk to you about your company. Um, but I think you're, you make a, a much more strategic point with this, which is it's not gone missing on, on us and, and anybody has been really watching the, the space that incredible amount of capital has been invested to get into people's homes. Like when, when Google went and made a, a monster investment uh, at the time uh, in Nest, if you remember, that was thermostat, right? Like it was like stupid multiples. It was incredible, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't because they want to get into the temperature measuring business. They did it because they wanted to find a way, a smart way to get into the home so they can actually start layering on more and more services. I'm sure it proved itself in all the different products that Nest has now. Mm -hmm. Now in these home uh, tools interact with your Google Home and now we have your digital footprint on the web and now, and now Google is creating a digital footprint for your home. They still don't know really who lives in the home and the age of the home and the services in the home. They still don't know any of that yet, mm -hmm. but they're working their way towards that. A company like Tribe is really well equipped to not necessarily take that data and and leverage it, it just to, to really allow the homeowner to take advantage of the wealth of the data that they've been able to accumulate and actually leverage that from a group buying, lowering expenses. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the most successful and very, very, I'm very proud of the product uh, program is the way we've taken the home information, educated you as a homeowner about the need for condo insurance. Cause I don't know if you know this, but 40% of, let me rephrase that, 60% of condos in Canada are not insured or underinsured. So this is a massive problem. Yeah. And it's not because it's expensive. It's a, it's a, it's a cost of a latte, you know, daily latte. It's not expensive. It's just people don't know that they need to get insurance and they don't know how to get the insurance. So if your data is on the platform and we know enough about the building and we can actually educate you why you need condo insurance mm -hmm. and get that data with a fingertip with your permission to three underwriters and they can come back and give you codes, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And our data shows that people really want more and more of that convenience mm -hmm. for that, for mortgage lending, for finding a tenant because they want to rent it out for 
uh, grocery delivery for all the items and, and long list of them of products and services that we've been bringing into the market. I, I wonder, you know, they, they like to, to continue with that example, they enter with the thermostat, they expand that into all these IOT devices and all this, this data about the home layering, right. And to get more and deeper penetration into the home. And it feels like what you're building could become, could become layered on top of that. It's value layered by way of social connection, by way of, of team buying, by way of all the ancillary services that make the, there's still people involved. They're not all robots and software yet, right? There's all these services that make living here just that much better. You're maybe never going to, you're not going to beat them at the software and IOT game, but you're going to, you're way ahead of everybody in terms of, of figuring out how to solve the, all those problems. Like I mentioned, like the, the dog walkers and the dry cleaners and the carpooling, uh, and, and the value created through through the social connections, you're way ahead of everybody. And I think it's valuable to them and a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, we think so. Um, and we think because it is not easy, it's complicated as we indicated. Yeah. And every day we create new workflows and processes for new things that we're just learning. And, and not every community is the same, every community is different. But you know, it's, 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 it's funny. Um, so my, my, uh, my wife, Sunita, who, who you've met, her mom is from Austria, her dad is from India, but the Austrian village where her mom was born, uh, just 20 minutes outside of Vienna, and I've been there a couple of times, and, and um, that village is 450, 500 homes, right? So you, it's two streets, three streets maybe, and you drive them and you just see the homes. And within there, there's a deli, there's a bakery, there's a small little church, there's a guest house, which is, you know, like a little hotel meets a bar and whatever. Well, I, I don't need to tell you, we delivering communities now that are 600 homes. Like this whole village was completely operating on its own, had its own handyman and, you know, and of course it needed things from the outside and, and vice versa. But we're, you know, there's buildings that are coming up in the downtown Toronto core that are 620 homes. And that's, that's a bigger village than what I'm just describing. What's, what are the needs of this? What are the connectivities of this, the complexities of this? And I think, I get excited again, going back to the why where we start about this human capital that's in there that can mm -hmm. flourish as, as they get to know each other. Mm -hmm. But also as a businessman, recognize that every single one of those households are going to spend $50,000 a year on things related to their home, mortgage, payments, rental, and that numbers, it's just average across the country. If you actually start looking within the downtown cores, it's actually a much higher number. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna spend that money anyways, but they're currently spending it in all kinds of different places separately. And imagine if you actually leverage the size of our network and actually delivered them some of these services for cheaper and all at the fingertips where it's all in one place where they don't have to go and chase it everywhere. Yeah, That's a big operation. It's a, it's a, it's a big idea. It's a cool idea. It's, it reminds me of Jeff Bezos' vision is his, his passionate, uh, what you call it, the, the good stubborn that he had focused on not the sellers, but the buyers and doing everything he could to make delivery faster, to make buying cheaper. And his, his sort of really passionate pursuit of that has led to, you know, obviously massive success and your focus on the people living in the buildings rather than, uh, you know, trying to sell a Stratacorp, your software package, but just focusing on the living experience, which is, is your why is going to potentially lead to, you know, a similar result. We hope, um, we hope really at the end of the day, 
look, uh, good companies will always be found and they'll, they'll be fine. Right. And, and, and at the end of the day for us, it's really just making that big impact in people's lives. And, and you know, I wish, I wish I can share, cause it's not like every time you get great feedback, you're going to go out there to the market and tell everybody, look what we're not going to tweet about it every day, you know, but, but some amazing personal stories that you read and you see, and, 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 you know, there are some days where we'll probably disappoint a lot, right? Like we disappoint one of our customers because sometimes definition of success for this, when you're, when you're servicing a large group of stakeholders, definition of success doesn't always overlap, right? So what constitutes success for, for councils or strata isn't necessarily their success for unit number 309. Yeah. They'll wanted something that strata didn't agree to. And yeah. you sit in the middle of that. So it's, it's emotional. It's something that people feel. It's their home, um, and 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 sometimes we're on the receiving end of that wrath. But that's mm-hmm. that's 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 what we signed up for. I wonder if you're already in the sharing economy. I wonder if the way that you're in it is the same way that like a current Uber driver, you know, eight years ago never knew that the their car sitting in their parking spot that they had extra capacity for it. Right. I wonder if the way that you're in it is in, in showing people that are living in these communities that they have extra capacity, that they're planning on having their uh, apartment repainted and um, that they have the ability to make it cheaper for themselves and their three neighbors that probably will also do it this year. Um, they just don't know it, right? And and what you're doing is is sort of creating value and showing these people and making it easy for them to, to capitalize on that extra capacity for their benefit and their neighbors. Yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it and um you know, there's more and more of those micro suites, right? 400 square foot, 380 square foot. You know, as 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 we know, it's it's becoming more and more difficult to to afford homes, and and those micro suites like means that you're likely not going to have a drill, you're likely not going to have a ladder. You know, things that you might need once a year, arguably even a vacuum, mm-hmm. probably not a once a year vacuum. Mm-hmm. I need it once a week, and. We think about that. We think about well, if I have, you know, an 800 square foot unit or home, I might have a vacuum and maybe I can make my vacuum available for somebody else to use. It's saying they're literally doing nothing. Yeah. Or my, you know, equipment or, or what have you. So you're right. You're, 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 it's the stuff that used to be, again, go back 200 years ago in that village in Austria. People are walking around, knocking on the door. Hey, can I borrow your ladder? Can I borrow, you know, and now you're just going to, create a, 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 an easy way for people to actually do that yeah. within the boundaries. Right? That was tried by an entrepreneur I met. I think it was called Shed. And the drill example was the one that was most commonly oh. used that people on average use their drill for 72 seconds a year or something, right. some crazy right. metric yeah. like that. And, uh, and that, and it didn't, didn't make it, but there's, you know, as we know, there's a thousand reasons why companies don't make it, but maybe it needs to, the same problem exists, but it needs to be within the, the massive infrastructure that you're building, which is like indicative of how you see the internet, not as the TikTok island or the YouTube island or the Facebook, uh, not island, it's sure, a yeah, yeah. megaverse. But anyways, you see the internet the same way you see these communities is, is more not islands. People aren't islands, but it's this, you have this opportunity to build this communication infrastructure that can create communication and sharing and, and, uh, and there's massive value in that. Yeah. I think the two way marketplaces, um, I, I haven't come across any and I've got pitched a lot. I've looked at a lot. I haven't looked at one that said, when I looked at it, I go, Oh, this is stupid. 
this doesn't solve a problem. Like, like two-way marketplaces, this concept of creating other, you know, share economy or, or capacity supply and demand model usually falls flat due to the expensive. What do you mean by two-way marketplace? So two-way marketplace is, is, is connecting supply and demand. So you mentioned this yeah. company, which I wasn't familiar with, but a thing called a shed, um, you know, somebody has the, the supply, so they have the drill. And then there's demand. There's six people in the building that need, or in, in, in the network that yeah. need that. So connecting them together is that's a two-way marketplace. So I'm going to lease it to them, or they can borrow it, or whatever the, the model is, monetizable model is, a transaction is. Um, so this, you know, and this, I've seen really cool stuff. Two-way marketplaces for cameras, like these guys that have high-end cameras. Well, you're likely not going to be using your high-end camera every day, but if you can make that available for somebody else that needs it, have a wedding or whatever, and you can see how, and it can you can actually go into different markets, you know, maybe sports tool uh, equipment, high-end stuff, or uh, DJ equipment. And, you, you know, you can see, like, not everything that you own is completely needing to sit with you. You can just make it available for it to be shared elsewhere. So this concept of two-way marketplaces has been around, and none of the ones I've ever seen, I was like, oh, this kind of stupid doesn't work. Where they've fallen flat usually is when the cost of acquisition of the customer can never come under control. It just always costs more. Like like Joe's got the drill, Cam is looking for a drill, but for this platform to convince, you know, Joe to make his drill available, there's a cost for that. And for to find Cam, the Cams in the world that need that, they bring you in at fifty dollars, but the cost of transaction is ten dollars. So it's just not worth it. Yeah. So that's usually when they fall flat and and they don't get to see it. the 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 Jeff Bezos you know Amazon example is he was losing money on every transaction for tens of quarters, but he had the backers to allow him to get to the mass scale to eventually be able to get over the line and yeah. they never look back. And I think your point is well taken, and I'm I'm in agreement with you that a company like us, our product isn't the share economy. Our product is actually getting our technology and more and more of these communities on our platform. Once they're on the platform, we can create a two-way marketplace because we don't have a cost of customer acquisition. I don't need to, it doesn't cost me anything yeah. to convince you as a homeowner with the data that you've got on the platform that you should go and look for XYZ product. You're already on the platform. Yeah. And that's why it's just pure gravy company like Amazon with the ability to layer and layer more and more products, you're already into the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So we're, we, we feel like our days come in there. Mm -hmm. And you have 40,000 homes. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, where do you think is the, is there a tipping point that you're looking forward to and what's enough? Um, yeah. I mean, we're already acting like we have enough, yeah. meaning we're bringing in more and more partnerships every day. Um, we are active in, 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 in acquisitions. Uh, we've, we've, just closed the financing uh, 60 days ago, uh, large financing, 21 million, large for us, $21 million. That's really gonna be allocated towards further acquisitions and further expansion of our footprint. So we're, we're um, you know, we're, we think, we don't know what the number, what the enough number is, yeah. but we believe that, you know, we wanna be national. There's just no doubt about it. We are national already, but we wanna have a lot, much bigger presence in places like downtown Toronto core. Um, and uh, we still think we have a lot more work to do here in BC, uh, Alberta as well, Northern uh, Northern Alberta. Uh, and then we we have massive aspirations for the US. We think we think our service, I and mean, we get it, I hear it about it every week. 
there's communities down south that are like, hey, can you bring your services here? Can you bring your technology here? Can you know, like, why why aren't you guys here? Mm-hmm. And we will get there. Mm-hmm. You went public last year, correct? What was that like? It, how did your job change from founder entrepreneur to publicly traded company CEO? Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of uh, so it was weird because we did it in the middle of of a pandemic. Yeah. So a traditional going public process would have looked different. Uh, be me in suits and planes and a lot of time in Toronto and maybe down south. And, but I didn't. I was four o'clock in the morning in my basement. And, uh, at worst, I had to put a nice top on. I'm not even sure I was wearing you know joggers <laughs> and just zooms and and uh, and a lot of remote work. Um, it was it was a good experience for the company because it just it forces you to grow up really quickly. Um, you know your your financials are audited. Your your you know you have to introduce a lot more governance into the behavior of the business. I hope it didn't affect the soul of the company. Our soul of the company is young. Our the soul of the company is is very very much obsessing about the goal that we've discussed plenty here. Um, but but it does open up tremendous opportunities to bring in funds. And we've been incredibly fortunate with the the types of funds that actually invest in our organization because they're the kind of funds that can back you up to some of the great success stories that we've been discussing today, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't get there. Uh, well, you can get there uh, and you often get there uh, if you're a successful company down south. There's just not that availability of that in Canada here. Mm-hmm. If you're a company that wants to really grow in Canada, um, it's a bit of a, of a vacuum in the private market here. So, so on a positive note, going public, um, opens up a lot more of these funds that can actually invest in you and back you. It gets you a lot more uh, visibility, uh, which is obviously helpful and then allows us to, um, to go out there. And, and also what I like about it from a, from a staffing point of view is it allows us to put together, um, you know, company participation programs, you know, you know, more uh, easily. Yeah, exactly. And more real, more real more allows tangible. our customers to, uh, our, our staff to invest in the business at discounts and stuff like that. We're putting a bunch of programs like that, that really can give them more tangible ownership of the business. Yeah. I mean, obviously have, we always have stock options as a private company, but, yeah. but as a public company, it's a little bit more tangible. What are what's your culture like? What, uh, like, what are your strategies regarding people that younger entrepreneurs might benefit from? copying yeah i i i, I always I, I always try not to take a position because i i will say like you know people will say to me why are you on twitter i'm like because i don't think anybody wants to hear from me my you know, my own household nobody wants to hear from me not alone in the <laughs> in the ether um so i i uh, i'm not sure you know i feel ever comfortable enough to say that my advice is so solid actually usually it's about my mistakes more more that's a lot more grounded than, 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 than anything that we've done really well. That being said, um, I'll give you an example. So we do an annual, and I'm just answering the question about culture and people. Um, we do an annual strategy and uh, this year it got delayed just because we're in the middle of the fundraising. And, you know, if you're going to raise um, 10 million is a different world than you're going to raise 20 million. So there's no point of doing your strategy sessions until you finalize your raising and, and you know what you're, you're going to be um, dealing with. So we did it a little bit after our, our, our uh, our funding and, uh, and it's two days and we spent a day and a half out of the two speaking about people 
or think about that, or a technology company, you think would be like one day just purely about ones and zeros and code and features and, you know, no, no, it was day and a half about people and retention, about how do we make them continue to believe that the company they joined two years ago and were much smaller um, is the same company now, you know, because you go from, I think we're at 21 people in January, 2018, and we're at 220 people now, right? That's not easy. And some of it came through acquisitions. And I, I always say, nobody that works for a company goes to sleep dreaming of waking up in the morning, hearing that the company they work for has got acquired. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? So that shock to the system, and what does it look like? And how do you bring people on your culture? And how do you, how can you not be dismissive of the existing culture that's already there and not say, oh, this is our way, it's a better way than your way. And, but in the same time, sometimes that is the case and sometimes it isn't the case. And mm-hmm. how can you be humble enough to be able to navigate through that, but strong enough to enforce that? Um, so I don't have a perfect answer other than stick to your why, stick to your, your true north. Um, and, and, um, in our case, and it's funny because I'm sure, I am sure if I was invisible, a lot of people's eyes would roll because we're constantly doing town halls and it's me going out there, re-emphasizing everything, giving them more updates than they probably ever wanted to know. Like monthly or more than monthly? No, we do it monthly. Yeah. But we, through the COVID, through COVID, we did it weekly. Yeah. Which sounds obnoxious, but yeah. you got to remember, we did six acquisitions in a span of two and a half years. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's one thing that you can't drive and be somewhere with, with people. It's another thing when you're, the owner of the company is different and you're not even with them, right? So, you, you, you know, you overemphasize that. I have a philosophy of over uh, communicating and, and, and providing a lot more visibility, even and more transparency and and it's funny until tribe um i had never been involved in a company where people can walk out and work for a competitor across the street i've never had that so tribe you know historically every company i've been involved invested in or companies that you know to or was never you know even the gps company like it was never like oh you know i'm going to give you so many secrets that you you know, where you can actually walk across the street and work for my competitor, right? Yeah. But that actually exists now. And it really made me question, should I be as, you know, should I continue down the path of transparency that I've always had? And and why is that? Is that because of the jobs at Tribe are very transferable to other companies? Well, because property management is property management. Yeah. I mean, every there's a ton of property management companies, right? They're not our size, yeah. but there's other property management companies. And something interesting is occurring um, and, and this, this sounds probably won't, I don't know how it's going to come across. I hope it comes across in the right light, but because tribe is a disruptor in the space and, you know, growing quite a bit, um, there's also a premium being applied to the people that work for us now, because, you know, other property management companies want to be say, oh, you know what? We got so-and-so from tribe. It's, I remember, you know, I liken it in the nineties to, to, to the Microsoft, right? Oh, the software engineer, he worked at Microsoft, you know, yeah, it says something. and this says something right yeah. now. It's funny now. I don't think it's. That runs the same path, um, or you work for Apple in the marketing department. Oh, wow, that's uh, get your hands on that person, right? Yeah. I'm not liking that to Apple or, or Microsoft, but you understand that yeah. um, in our yeah, industry, yeah. We're, we're, we're kind of seen that way. So, so that kind of puts more pressure on us. So, you, you know, you're always wondering and constantly thinking. And, you know, the industry, as I mentioned earlier, is leaking more property managers than attracting. So, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's finite, you know, human power. 
So, um, so what we're doing is we're attracting younger people who have never done any property management and we want to train them based on the model of ours. And we've had great success with that. We just can't do it fast enough. Yeah. I see you, man. I see you. <laughs> I love what you're doing. I see you as a teenager, um, you know, and your mom, the accountant who's, uh, <laughs> pursues being a seamstress cause she loves it probably and is amazing at it. And your dad, the treasurer who drove a car he loved and drove a cab and it didn't maybe wouldn't make sense to some people, but you know, he wasn't above it. He didn't even, you know, you looked at it and you just looked up to him so much that now you are, uh, you know, fancy pants software CEO founder, and you're going to say, fuck it. We're going to clean the hallways. We're going to, we're going to fix the plumbing and unplug the toilets. We're going to do it all. And we're not above it. Yeah. And through doing it well, we're going to change the world or change the industry. At least it's awesome. Yeah, and, and, and if we just change the way people interface with their home um, and feel better about it and maybe stress less about um, about the future of the building and more about the well-being of their own child, that's a win, right? Or, or if, if they can go and, and have a, a beautiful collision with somebody next door to them and babysit them or help them, it's a beautiful thing. That's cool. Yeah. How can people learn more? What's your website, your uh, ticker? Our website is tribedeck.com and our ticker is trbe.v, which is the venture exchange. Um, and uh, and we're, we're available. My email is on there and, and people can email or call. And and uh, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe finish with that thought. Anybody that's living in any of those communities with a rental situation or a or strata situation and has any questions and people don't believe me when I say this, I mean it. Reach out to us. Tell us your questions. We'll give you an answer. We don't get compensated for it. And often we answer is, you know what? Your situation is good. Your property management company is doing you good. Stay with them. That's often the number one question uh, uh, that we usually get. And that's, believe it or not, often the common answer that we give. So we're not, we're not, we, there's plenty of business. We just want the good property management companies that are doing a good job to continue doing that. And uh, if people are just at the end of their journey and they just can't, see any other way they can reach out to us and, and and learn more about our services you're doing great work man thank, thank you thank you man so Keep good to see there. you yeah. you too it's been fun thanks for coming Lovely. cheers Lovely.